Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, July 26, 2020, and this is show number 794. Well, this week's episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond was another installment of Taming the Terminal. Two weeks ago, Bart taught us the basics of a technology called TMUX, or Terminal Multiplexer, and this allows you to access the same server in many different ways at the same time. That time, he covered how TMUX replaces the deprecated screen, and uh, but he didn't go into too much uh, further information about it. In this rather light and easy-to-follow installment, he takes TMUX up a notch and shows us how to create multiple windows and multiple panes all within a single TMUX session. Like I said, it was super easy to understand, very visual, and I had a lot of fun. You can listen to this week's installment by searching for Taming the Terminal in your podcatcher of choice, or it's included in the full Chit Chat Across the Pond feed as well. And as always, you can go get Bart's fabulous tutorial show notes over at bartb.ie, and of course, there's a link in the show notes. This week, I had an absolute blast being a guest on the Clockwise podcast hosted by Micah Sargent and Dan Morin. I got to meet fellow guest and developer for Mozilla Mobile, Sawyer Blatz. If you haven't listened to Clockwise before, it's super crisp and well-organized. Their tagline is four people, four tech topics, 30 minutes. And they mean it. It is exactly 30 minutes. Each person gets to make up a question, and the other people have about two minutes to state their answer. So there's not a lot of long, rambly stuff. It's a lot of fun. The questions we pondered this week were, the first one was, uh, Spotify just added video support for podcasts, and this had Micah Sargent curious because he wanted to know when was the last time you watched a podcast. And then uh, the second question from uh, Sawyer was, with gyms closed and anxiety at all-time highs, I've been relying on technology a lot more for maintaining my physical and mental health. I'm wondering, what's your favorite health-related app or service? Next up, uh, let's see, who was next? It was uh, Dan asked, what's a process that you thought you could speed up slash automate with tech only to discover you'd basically reinvented the wheel? I uh, I got everybody laughing with my answer. So I figure I, I, I won with that one. And finally, my question was, I recently bought a mobile phone lens kit with a 15X macro and a 0.6X super wide angle lens for only $16. I figured at that price, I could entertain myself for a few hours playing with it. Spoiler, it turned out to be really fun. What tech gear have you bought recently just because you thought it was so cheap? You thought, why not? Anyway, I had a great time and I hope you'll look for Clockwise in your podcatcher of choice or you can find episode 356 at relay.fm. As I mentioned a while ago, my aged Drobo 5N died after many years of good service. The 5N for the last few years had the role of backup NAS to the newer Drobo 5N too. When the 5N died, I did what I've been itching to do for quite some time. I bought a Synology DS1019+. Well, I explained back in June when I first got the Synology that I wished I could give you a full review of the device, but this thing is so feature-rich and so new to me that I'll be putting out smaller pieces on it from time to time rather than one giant article. Lucky for me, Stephen Getz bought a Synology at the same time as me, so he'll be helping to answer all of my questions. The initial big change going from Drobo to Synology was going from a dedicated app for Drobo to web interface for Synology. The Drobo app isn't bad, but it's antiquated. In fact, Catalina keeps complaining about a legacy app that will stop working soon, and the app is the Drobo dashboard. I've written to Drobo, and they promise it will be updated before the next OS, but, you know, it just doesn't give you a warm and fuzzy feeling when you're this close to the edge. 
The Synology is accessed via the IP address of the device on your network with a real simple login window. When you're logged in, you're in what they call Disk Station Manager, or DSM. DSM looks like a nice, pretty Linux GUI desktop. It looks like that because that's exactly what it is. From what I can gather in my searching, it isn't any standard Linux distribution, but a modified distribution of Synology's invention. It looks like a real computer windowing system, kind of encapsulated inside of a browser window. I just realized I'm talking about this as though you absolutely know what a NAS is. NAS is network attached storage. So this is a whole bunch of disk drives shoved into a box and it's on my network. But it has this pretty web interface and a lot more to it as you're about to hear. On the desktop are, remember, desktop inside this window, inside this little Linux uh, distribution that I'm talking about. On this desktop, there are a couple of important functions that we should walk through. Package Center is where you'll get all of the fun applications you can run on the Synology. There are 57 apps written by Synology in Package Center and another 52 written by third parties. But that's not all. You can install third-party apps designed for Synology from outside of Package Center. I found a couple of resources for apps in just a quick search, like uh, sinocommunity.com and a search engine for finding third-party packages at search.sinopackage.com. Now, I have no idea if these are legitimate or terrifying, so perhaps until Stephen Getz does the research for me and tells me they're safe, I'll keep myself entertained with the 109 applications available in Package Center. Another important service right there on the desktop of the Synology is called FileStation. As you might suspect, this is where you manage your files, but it's been a little bit odd for me to get used to. I'm not sure you have to do it this way, but you can create separate shared folders on your network attached storage, each of which appear as a separate volume when you mount them to your Mac or PC. I say I'm not sure you have to do it because, I mean, technically you just dump all of your data in one giant share. That might get real dumb if you start setting up things like time machine backups for your Synology, though. Once you create shared folders, you can mount them via SMB, also known as Samba, to your Mac using the Go Connect to Server option in Finder. While my Synology will be backed up to the Drobo 5N2, I first needed to get all of the data from the 5N2 onto the Synology. Now, I could have mounted the equivalent shared volume of both NAS devices to one of my Macs and then dragged the files from the 5N2 over the Synology. But that would have meant every bit of that data would have traveled up over our network twice, once from the Drobo to the Mac and then back down from the Mac to the Synology. Instead, inside FileStation, you can mount a remote folder. When you mount a remote folder, you have to choose a SIFS or NFS shared folder. SIFS is spelled C-I-F-S. I did some poking around, looked up the acronyms, and I have no idea why you would pick one over the other. I found a bunch of trade-off pages, talked about different things, why one thing was better than the other, but Stephen Getz told me to go with SIF, so that's what I did, because then I figured I could blame him if it was the wrong decision. So now that I, I created uh, these remote folders, I mounted them inside the Synology interface, I can see all of the shares on both NAS devices without mounting them every time, so that's pretty cool. It took forever, like a week, to move 8.1 terabytes of data from the Drobo to the Synology. That was mostly, though, I, because I was doing it in clumps, because then I could check that each piece would actually work. But I did finally get all of our data migrated. I mean, it, it did actually take a long time, but I did it very carefully and methodically, so I didn't just move like a thousand files at once and then try to figure out where it got stuck, because that kind of thing always goes badly. 
Synology comes with a control panel, which looks at first blush like control panel on Windows or system preferences on the Mac, but I'm definitely not quite comfortable in there yet. I'm confused by one thing in particular. It has a section on file services that I really think belongs over in FileStation. For example, if you want to enable Apple File Protocol, AFP, versus using Samba, you don't do that in FileStation, you do it in File Services inside Control Panel. Okay, that's great, but file permissions are not in FileStation, they're in the Control Panel called User. I'm sure I'll get used to that, but I find myself switching back and forth between File Services and File Manager, trying to figure out where the control I need is actually located. On the Drobo, there's only one user. On Synology, since it's really a Linux installation, you can create multiple users and give them different permissions. That's not a big deal in my house since I, mostly, trust Steve with admin privileges on things I manage, but it's kind of nice to have our own logins to the Synology. It also becomes very important, or it did become very important, I should say, when I installed the Plex server package on the Synology. It turns out that the Plex server, to see the folders with your content to make them into libraries, you have to create a user named Plex and give it permissions to those folders. So that's kind of counterintuitive to me since the, solder, the, the folders are on the Synology where the Plex server is installed. But, you know, there you go. You've created this Plex uh, account and then you, or I'm sorry, Plex user, and then you give it the privileges to look at the stuff that's right where it is. Anyway, that's why I had to learn where to go to give a user privileges. It's not in the user control panel. It's not in the file services either. It's in FileStation under properties of the folder itself, and permissions is where you can add a user to have access. Now, it's hard to get to because if you select the folder in FileStation and open the action menu where properties are an option, they're grayed out. You have to right-click on the folder and then choose properties. So I, I don't know. I think maybe that's a bug. I'm not sure. But it was really hard for me to find the right permissions options in the menus because there's lots of different places you can change permissions. At this point, even with that curious annoyance, I'm sure you're hollering at me that this is exactly where you change permissions on the Mac, right? So uh, it, there was a slight difference that tripped me up was why it was confusing. When you're in File Station and you successfully discover properties and go to the Permissions tab, this is where you can actually create the user, in this case named Plex. Anyway, I read all kinds of forum posts and I had to keep opening menus to find the one that looked like the screenshot they showed to find that answer. The good news is that Synology is so popular that there are lots and lots and lots of posts on how to do things. Every time I ever search for an answer on a Drobo question, I basically get crickets as a response to my Google search, or at best, an answer from 2014. It's kind of nice to be in the modern age, finally. Now, I feel like I haven't done much with the Synology, given the plethora of things it can do, but I do like knowing I have hours of entertainment available to me. Now, I mentioned turning on Plex, and I pointed it to our library of RIP movies and, and TV shows. Now, we own all of these discs, by the way, 350 of them at last count. Our main purpose with our Plex library is to have them backed up and to allow our children who no longer live at home to be able to watch these movies. When I got the Drobos, I tried setting up Plex on the Drobos and that was a disaster. The processors in them were too darn slow to manage the task. Eventually, I decided to use a 2016 Mac Mini, which had no purpose in our house, that is, as a Plex server, so it had no purpose in the house and it's been doing a passable job of serving up the movies. I say passable where the definition of that terms means sometimes works. 
to call it fiddly would be an understatement. If the Mac Mini reboots for any reason, which it seems to spontaneously do from time to time, someone has to know that that happened and log back into my account. We've had all kinds of networking weirdnesses too, and it's not been a pleasant experience for anyone. Once I got the Plex server on Synology to have permission to see its own drives, the Plex server quickly downloaded all of the, I guess I'd call it album artwork, and updated the tiles and it was in business. I had Lindsay, the nerdiest of my kids, test it out, and the movie came up immediately. She said, that's way better, because it actually worked. Now we're still fiddling with the quality of the stream, because it kind of appears that they're getting a 720p signal instead of the full definition. But you know what? What fun would this be if it worked, you know, completely immediately? There's a lot of other services you can enable on the Synology that can only make sense if you can access it externally. For example, you can use a Synology package to replace Drobo-like functionality and even host your own office automation cloud services, not unlike Google Docs. In order to access the Synology from outside the network, they have an easy internet wizard, which offers to con uh, configure your internet connection, router port forwarding, and set up a firewall. I suspected I would not like its choices, and I took a look at what it was going to do, and sure enough, it wants to have UPnP enabled. UPnP stands for Unplug and Play, which from what Bart has explained to us is not a great idea from a security standpoint, so I backed away from this easy method. They do have a service called Quick Connect, which allows you to connect via a web browser to your Synology. You create a Quick Connect ID, or accept the one they offer you, which is sort of like a password passphrase, but not really. It can only contain letters, numbers, and dashes. Once you've chosen a Quick Connect ID, you connect to your Synology externally by going to uh, quickconnect.to, followed by your Quick Connect ID. Now, this is HTTP colon slash slash quickconnect.to. It is not HTTPS. Don't be alarmed, though. As soon as the URL resolves, it takes you to your login screen to connect to your Synology, and that screen is secure. Once you log in with Quick Connect, it is the, uh, it's the management web interface that you have at home. So it's not a way to run the cloud services, for example. It's a way to manage the server. Now, I found an article on HowToGeek regarding some problems with Quick Connect, mostly with bad passwords. And mine is a wicked good xkpasswd.net password, of course. But it suggests instead of using Quick Connect to instead enable OpenVPN on the Synology and log in via an, uh, the VPN. See? Hours more entertainment available to me. You may buy a network attached storage device, NAS, to back up data locally. Maybe you back up your music, photos, and financial data. If your NAS dies, then it's not a catastrophe because that's a backup. In our case, though, the data on our NAS is mostly data we have nowhere else. The volume is too big at 8.1 terabytes and counting to be financially feasible to back up to the cloud. One volume has personal data that could easily be backed up to the cloud, but that data is of a nature that we don't want it outside of our house. A single NAS device has the data replicated through RAID, so we should be protected from failure, right? Well, not completely. We're protected if a disk drive fails, which is the most likely scenario. But when my Drobo 5N died, the failure was that it could no longer see the hard drives. The only way I would have been able to get my data back would have been to buy another Drobo and hope it could read the disks. I can't just plug a disk into my Mac and see anything on it because it's all rated up and stuff. So this is why I have two NAS devices. 
In my new scenario, all original data goes onto the Synology, and then the plan was to back it up to the Drobo 5N2 that I still maintain. I explained the challenges of backing up from the Synology to the Drobo in my initial story about the Synology, but in a nutshell, Stephen and I have been unable to find any way to back up directly between the two devices without utilizing another com computer. As I explained in talking about moving the initial data from the Synology to the 5N2, it's inefficient to have all the data crawl up the Ethernet cable from one NAS to the Mac and then back down to the second NAS, but at this point, that's my only choice unless somebody tells me a better idea. The work I've done in the past two weeks has been to use Carbon Copy Cloner to attempt to back up from one to the other via the Mac Mini. I say attempt because I've had mixed success. Most of it's working. I have seven shared volumes to back up, one of which is named Delete Me, so I can simply use it to test things like backups. So it's really six real volumes. Well, actually, not really. One of them is called Documents, and I don't even know what that one's for. So let's call it five real volumes. From least annoying to most annoying to deal with. The first one is financial and medical documents we don't want in enemy hands. It's 100% text, so the files are plentiful, but they're small. The next one is cold storage of all the data that goes into making the podcast each week. Some fairly large audio files, but a lot of littler files too. Nothing that I can't live without, but it's just kind of cool to have it. The third one is Steve's been scanning in our photo albums and putting them on the NAS. Until I catch up with them and pull them into photos on my Mac, these are the only copies of those photos. So those are lots and lots of medium-sized image files. The next one is, as I've mentioned, we've got hundreds of DVDs and Blu-rays ripped to our movie drive for Plex access. And uh, while we do have the DVDs still, I don't think Steve wants to rip those again. So it is really important to get those backed up. And finally, the most annoying share, which was all of the original source material for Steve's videos. The files are plentiful and most of them are gargantuan. Now, remember that the first thing I did when I got the Synology was copy all of the data from the Drobo 5N2 to the Synology. So I set up Carbon Copy Cloner on the Mac Mini to start cloning back the other way. I figured it would work really easily and quickly because the data should have been identical at that point. I started with the Delete Me share, since that's the whole job, and it worked really quickly. That was perfect. Over the next week or so, I started doing the more important shares. All of those text document documents cloned immediately. The podcast audio and image files worked great too. No trouble at all with all of the RIP movies and TV shows. But then I hit Steve's monstrous large video share and that's when things got interesting. Of our 8.1 terabytes of data, 5.4 terabytes of it are on this one share. The clone of the large video drive will run for hours or sometimes just minutes, but it just keeps having failures on different files. Carbon Copy Cloner is written by Mike Bombick, and he's possibly the most responsive, smart, and helpful developer I've ever worked with. But after weeks of work, he's out of ideas. I mean, I'm talking like 20 emails back and forth looking at log files. Here's his synopsis of the problem. I think we've exhausted every option on the Carbon Copy Cloner macOS side of the equation to make this more robust. Again, I'm seeing dropouts from both the source and the destination. I don't see any network connectivity problems, just periodic disconnects from the NAS devices and random file vanished messages. That is, a file was indicated as contained by a folder, but then the NAS claims the file isn't actually there. I put an example of a typical error message into the show notes in case anyone reading or listening has an epiphany about this, and you can see where it'll just say, disappeared from source. Or it'll, one of my favorites, let's see, the source NAS volume indicated this file was in its parent folder, but when Carbon Copy Cloner attempted to, to open the file, the NAS device reported that file did not exist. 
So we're not really sure what's going on there, but Mike believes that if I keep running the task regularly, it will eventually get all into sync. But until the NAS side issues get addressed, we will continue to see a low level of errors. Now, before I go to the bottom line, um, one of the great reasons that I do a live show in front of a live audience is if I say something stupid, somebody can correct me. And listener Kurt has uh, joined us, I think, for the first time. Oh, he's been here a couple of times. Listener Kurt is in the live chat room at podfeet.com slash live. And uh, he said that I, he pointed out that I said uh, unplug and play is what UPNP stands for. It's actually universal plug and play. So I really appreciate that, uh, that correction. That, that was great. So the bottom line is that I'm having a lot of fun with the Synology in spite of this one share kind of giving us fits. Overall, it's way, 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 way faster than the Drobo 5N2, and that 5N2 is only a couple of years old. Opening the shared folders via the Finder is really quick, which Steve and I are both really enjoying, and running Plex off the Synology is quite a bit faster than running it off the Mac Mini. We're really pleased with the Synology, and I'm super happy the Drobo 5N finally died, so I had to buy a Synology. I look forward to all the other cool, fun stuff I'll be able to do with it, and I haven't even started to look at the iOS apps for Synology. Well, Steve and I just are coming off the high of having gone to the virtual MacStock Expo, and uh, I actually asked him to come on here because I wanted to talk about the technology of the event and how that technology actually made the conference feel. So uh, are you up for this, Steve? Yeah, I am. How are you doing, Podfeet? <laughs> I'm doing great. <laughs> nice to hear your voice. Um, so I wanted to talk through a little bit of the structure and and talk to you also about how this made you feel and whether you felt that they achieved the goal of making it as close as possible to a um, an in-person event. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I wanted to explain to people was that the presentations were all pre-recorded. So they were uh, video interviews where where Mike did interviews with people or people did their own uh, recordings. And I I think that was good because that kept it crisp. What do you think, Steve? Yeah, I I think it was. In fact, I think, was it you that made the observation that it was kind of like uh, the the most recent uh, Apple presentation, (laughs) WWDC, where everything was real crisp. It went really quickly. Super slick. Definitely. but combined with, maybe you're about to get to this, combined with some real-time uh, feedback. Yeah, yeah. So that was good having that. But I I, I went to a, um, a Comic-Con. We both went to a Comic-Con thing recently where it was an interview and it was like, it was live and it was going to be on at five o'clock and we were all excited. And we got to five o'clock and it was just a video that had been posted. Yeah, from beginning to end. And that just didn't cut it for me. It was flat. Right. Yeah. It was no, no, there was no interaction. So it, it felt like, well, I could have just gone to YouTube anytime to see this. It's not, you know, and they had scheduled the event. Well, didn't need to be scheduled if you're just playing a video. Yeah. Yeah. It was very, it was very uh, artificial, I think, that way. So the way Mike Potter got away from that was um, he used this cool tool I've never heard of before called Jitsi, J I T S I from Jitsi. I think it's jitsi.org. And it's a uh, a free and open source web conferencing tool. Think like a Zoom sort of thing. And he created a private Jitsi meet room for uh, just the speakers. And he was in there. And um, what the way the show started 
it was Mike in front of this brick wall, right? Steve, you were noticing mm-hmm. it looked just like the 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 uh, McHenry McHen- Center. McHenry site, right. We've seen it every year at MacStock, that, that famous brick wall that right outside the uh, presentation hall. Yeah, except he had a neon sign on it that said MacStock. Well, yeah. it turns out it was all green screen, but it, it made us feel like we were in that. There was something about yeah. it. I, I was impressed. I thought he went to McHenry and put up a, you know, a neon sign that said <laughs> Max, uh, virtual Max. <laughs> and he let me uh, uh, peek behind the curtain a little, a little bit. He said he was talking to Oliver uh, Breidenbach of Boinks and Oliver suggested he did it at first and he said it looked really artificial. And Oliver said the trick is blur the background just a little bit. Yep. Give it that depth. Yeah, just a little bit. And it was it was really believable. It was only because I saw him later in the uh, in the in Jitsi that I could tell that was he was sitting in front of the green screen. So that was cool. Sure. Um, So what when we first saw him, he came out like that and then he would play the video of the presentation. And then because he had the speakers collected in the speakers room, he would let us in after our presentation so we could do live Q&A. Right. That's what made it that piece different. Right. Most definitely. Yeah, because um, what it did, it gave access uh, to the speak direct access to the speakers for anyone who was who was watching. Now, granted, the the input was through text uh, input to comments through YouTube. Yeah. So it was the YouTube built in YouTube chat. Yeah, I guess technically YouTube live. Yeah, YouTube Live, the chat. So so Dave Ginsburg was monitoring the the chat. And if you put the word question in front of what you wanted to ask, then after when the speaker was brought in, Mike would hand it off to Dave Ginsburg and Dave Ginsburg would ask the question of the speaker. Yeah, I thought that was really well organized. He did a good job with that. Yeah, that was that was an interesting thing. Plus, I got to learn about a new free and open source tool. I want to play around with Jitsi Meet even more. So, so that, did did that feel like um, like a Zoom call from your perspective as a participant? Very much so. Yeah, it was real clean. The video was good. Um, it would. It, it was. It was fun in there. It was like we had our own little private chat. But <laughs> but then he had to let us out, and every once in a while he would let us all on screen at the same time in a grid view. Whoever was in there, and the speakers weren't stuck. This thing ran like five hours. Uh, but the speakers weren't stuck in there. We could come and go as we please. You know, you and I went and had lunch, and then I came back and went back in there. Um, so it was it was a it was a neat it was neat to learn a new tool. I want to play more with Jitsi. Did you have much or any control of how you viewed the speakers? Like in Zoom, you have a speaker view versus a gallery view, and you can mute yourself and you can turn off your video. Could you do all that? Or you could definitely turn your video on and off. I I gotta play with it more. Maybe I'll just do a thing just on Jitsi and how it works uh, later. But um, I. I got the sense that Mike was controlling that view because he controlled. Yeah. Because he took like just uh, one person and put them on screen for the YouTube live video. He was able to break that one person out and send them, even though we were all sitting in the Jitsi room. Now, yeah, I'm not sure. Do you have that control with Zoom as a uh, the the person who originates the call? I don't think there's anything. Yeah. Like so that. so this may have some benefits over over Zoom. Yeah, there might be something else there. So um, the 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 live chat uh, maybe maybe we'll circle back to the live chat because we wanted to talk a little bit more about that. Um, yeah. I, I the the coolest thing and I teased this last week was he used a tool called High Fidelity. It's at highfidelity.com and it's a a virtual meeting room. So it's a, a big piece of of the 
going to a conference is the people you talk to in the lunchroom, right? The people you talk right. to in the in the lounge. You have these little side conversations, and it might be about tech, it might not be, and they absolutely replicate that. Replicated that, I thought, with this thing called high fidelity. So oh. it, it, describe, get, put it in your words, Steve, of how yeah. this thing worked. What, what is it? Yeah, like? so so picture yourself. So there's a basically a graphic layout of of a not just a room, kind of a uh, an area that has several little pieces to it: a pool, a little a stage, a little couch Couches. set up over here, a little uh, you know round table over there. Just basically er areas you might find in a conference, a, a one floor conference. And so you, as a participant. You are an avatar, basically, and you could move yourself around anywhere in this conference room. But what's really cool is how they handled the sound. This, the audio was done so well, and I think that's the, the killer feature for, for this uh, for high, fidelity. high fidelity. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so each each person's avatar, you put you know you put your little avatar on on your circle and uh, you give it access to your uh, microphone. But then it was uh, two-dimensional sound. So if someone was to the right of you, you would hear it in your right headphone. And if they were on your left, you would hear it on the, on the left. And then you had kind of an arc out in front of you, and that's where the direction your voice was going. So you could stand behind somebody, and they'd be a, you'd be a little quieter to them. And then if you stood straight in front of them and turned and pointed towards them, which I think yep. we actually only figured that part out right towards the end. <laughs> Yeah, that effect was done so well. So you said left, right, but it, it's actually a step beyond that. So I experimented a little as as a person listening to someone else talk. I kind of circled around them while I, <laughs> I faced forward. You didn't and look creepy at all. you could kind of hear them go in and forward, back, left, right. It's not just left, right, because dead ahead is... Oh, was it? Well, so dead ahead may sound the same as straight behind you, but at least you, you heard the crossover as, as okay. you... As they cross from left to right, it was continuous, and okay. it was a really. I actually wanted to turn my head in the direction that the sound was coming from, and, and it was in the direction where the avatar was talking, from and, which and, they were talking. And the sound was uh, quieter as you got farther away. And that was, and it's, it was done so well because it's not just quieter; it got a little bit muddled too. Mm. They actually distorted the sound, so it was a kind of a like, like they were a murmur. talking about. A murmur, uh, so it's not just a lower volume, but less distinct wording, as if they were often in the distance. So it was very, it was done so realistically, and it made me think I was actually in a room where I'm talking to someone, but hearing in the background off to the right, another group talking. I don't quite understand what they're saying. Or but what maybe that's hearing. interesting. I'll go talk yeah, to them. Yeah, but I hear a word or two, and oh, I'm going to run over there and hear that one. And then uh, maybe farther away is another group that I can't hear at all what they're saying, but I know they're talking. That was pretty done very well. I think one of the ways you can tell whether this was just a, uh, you know, a flash in the pan, just a, a, a cool technology. And because we're nerds, we liked it was that real conversations were happening. Um, mm -hmm. JF Brissett came in and he's the, uh, he's the editor who works on my videos for Don McAllister screencast online and, and a longtime friend and a longtime friend. Yeah. You just wanted to hang out and talk to him, but I dragged him over to the, the pool and said, uh, Hey, I wanted to ask you some questions about some stuff I was doing in the latest video. Cause he's about to edit this video. And I wanted to explain to him, like I found this bug in the software and how, why I left this bug in because I wanted people to see it just in case it ever happened to them. Then I want him to know I'm not an idiot that I left this this mistake in there. 
And so we actually got some work done in the room. Without bothering everyone else. Right, right. Now, it was, I found it hard to get somebody, like a couple of times we had, uh, well, the funniest thing, uh, Guy uh, Searle and uh, Gazmaz, um, Gary Malpas, did an episode of, uh, I always want to just call it the G-Men, My Mac, the My Mac podcast. They always do the podcast in in the lounge room at MacStock, and Guy figured out how to do it inside High Fidelity. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. <laughs> so yeah, so uh, Gaz wasn't actually in the room. He wasn't in high fidelity yet. He came in later, but he was coming through the microphone of Guy Searle. So Guy had to be combining his mic and the input. <laughs> so I came in a little late, and I just wandered into that little group, mm-hmm. not realizing I was jumping into the middle of the My Mac uh, podcast. Which happens at real Mac stock, by the way. Yeah, People just happen, walk up but, and they end but up But it's in a it. little less obvious because I'm not seeing a mic there, and they're sitting down at the table. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so they're talking, and all of a sudden, they just ask me a question, and I'm, I'm talking about how I handle my photos on iPhoto and how I BART them and so forth. I didn't realize I was contributing to my Mac podcast. <laughs> but the weird thing was, when I first walked up, I swore I heard Gazmaz coming out of Guy's avatar. Like, what the heck is going on here? And they had to explain, no, we piped our audio together, so we're just one person in this room. Okay, okay. So I'm going to do a sideways thing and then come back to that Um we, we were talking about what avatar picture you should do, and Corky Heath changed his avatar to Chuck Joyner. So Steve starts talking to, to Corky, thinking he's Chuck. And Chuck has this very professional photo. You know, he's in a suit and the whole thing. And Corky's just laughing his head off because Steve's talking to him thinking he's Chuck. So, well, that really threw me because Corky first came in with an avatar of his dog, Hoosier, who we love. It's a great dog. 245, 250 50. pounds, he said. He said he's gained a little weight. Yeah, he's, he's, he's got the, the curve. The lo- loveliest, peaceful, huge dog. Yeah, yeah. So um, when we were sitting around this, uh, we were in the couch area with uh, Guy and Gaz coming out of Gaz's, uh, out of Guy's mouth, which was weird, out of his avatar. And we were sitting around on the couch, and, and it was kind of fun because everybody was kind of contributing and talking in the show. But then I wanted to get Corky and Sandy, um, another new solo castaway, off out of the uh, out of the area. And so I sidled up real close on the on the, on the couch and went, "Hey, Sandy, hey, come on, let's go over by the pool and we're gonna talk." Only it turns out that doesn't actually work. Everybody well, could hear me, and they started we were, following yeah, me. Yeah, we were close enough; we could hear the whisper. Yeah, so it was a little hard to just go, "Hey, these people are boring. I want to go." <laughs> you know, you couldn't really do that. Um, yeah. But I've been wanting to get the two of them together because they're both quilters. And so anyway, I got a chance to introduce them. A lot of Nocilla Castaways, man. We were swarming that show. That was great. We were well represented. Yeah. Showing the colors. I I can't start to name people because there were, uh, there were a lot. Yeah, there were. And there were so many people that I would, it, it would only offend people if I started naming them. Um, another thing that told me that high fidelity was really making this feel like something real was uh, the show finished, uh, Mike said goodbye, we all waved, all the speakers waved, it was all done. And then I was working on some stuff because I needed to start another uh, recording. And I heard Steve laughing, and it's like 20 minutes after the show's over, right? And I go in, and he's still in high fidelity, and he's got, (laughs) uh, there were like 10 people you were hanging out with. Yeah, I still had some catching up to do. I hadn't talked to Gazmaz in years. Who did finally come in in his own avatar. Yes, he did, finally. And much less confusing that way. 
<laughs> than, than his vo voice coming out a guy. Right. I will say there are a couple things I would like. I I think would be great improvements. One is that um, you know you like to be able to get up and go have you know get something to drink or mm -hmm. you know eat lunch. And there's no way other than maybe just quitting the app. There's no way to gracefully say I'm not here. So your avatar oh, sits there. Yeah. And people walk up to you. I, I can envision this happening. Well, I saw it happen, and they're not there. So you're you're saying hey. Hey Gary, how's it going? And Gary's just sitting there, just not sitting responding. There, it sounds really rude, but he's just not there. Yeah, I would you're like right. to be able to say, I, you know, I'll be right back. I'm not here on my avatar. Something that says some sort of a way. Yeah, otherwise it looks like I'm just being rude. You know, that would be good feedback for the high fidelity group because this is in beta right now, and and they said go ahead and try it while it's free. So this this will probably cost uh, money, but it's it's free right now to go try. You can just go to highfidelity.com, create your own room, and you can have some fun with it. Uh, so yeah. you guys can go play with it. But that's really good feedback. I kept uh, quitting it. Um, one of the other challenges was if you wanted to sort of, um, you know, multiplex and do two things at once, if you wanted to listen to the presentations but also screw around in the, in the uh, um, you know, goof around over in the lounge – if you were in the same browser and didn't have a way to control the volume separately, you would hear them both at the same time. Yeah, I, I had that problem a lot. Uh, so just to make it clear, the presentations were separate from the room in a YouTube Live window, right? Mm -hmm. And you could run that on a different browser or the same browser, but a separate window from from the, the virtual room. So most computers don't let you control the volume separately for those, but the app should, I think that's a big improvement if the app could let you turn mm. up or down the volume because uh, you might use this often with other other things going on. Maybe. Um, the, maybe. Way, the way I solved the problem was uh, Audio Hijack, uh, or, I'm sorry, not Audio Hijack, but SoundSource from Rogue Amoeba, the people who make Audio Hijack, um, it's 29 bucks. It lets you change the volume of different applications. So I would right. put, um, I had YouTube, uh, the YouTube video running in Safari and I was using Chrome for the, uh, the high fidelity mm -hmm. uh, chat room or, you know, the, the, the lounge and I can change the volume of the two different broadcasts, you know, the two different yeah. applications. And I didn't have that ability. So you could mute the YouTube live video. But yes. then you kind of want to, you know, I'm listening with one ear. I mean, if you're a normal person, you would do one or the other. But it was hard to gracefully right. leave the other one, like you said. Right, right. Without quitting. And I didn't want to quit. Yeah. Really. I started turning it way down to like 20%. And then I would turn Safari up to 100% while I was listening to the presentation. That way, if somebody said something to me, you know, mm -hmm. a couple of times, it's like, Al, Al, Al. <laughs> Using Soundflower. Sorry. Alan, Alan. Alan. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that no. actually brought up a funny thing. I was uh, I was in a group of five or six people, and and Brett and, and L happened to be there, mm -hmm. uh, who both presented at this virtual Brett Max talk. Brett, Brett Terpstra and L, and um, and you were over a little bit distance away. I was trying to get your attention. I said, "Hey, Al," and L turns to me and says, "Oh, what do you what? <laughs> oh, I, th I guess I need to be more clear, Allison. <laughs> I'll say Allison from now on." But those all of these experiences, these were things that would happen in real life. You know, I, I, I just felt like I was with the community. Mm -hmm. You yeah. know, it, it, it did feel real. 
Um, there, so you had one big improvement idea, though, about the the chat in YouTube. Yeah. Um, well, so I think many of us, uh, particularly those who participate in your live show Sunday nights at 5 p.m., um, I have gotten used to Discord as a, a chat client, and it's a pretty full featured chat client, and and that seems to be the direction of many chat clients these days is being able to insert links or or put in an image mm-hmm. or do, react directly to a comment with an emoji or maybe even sub you know sub threads and youtube live doesn't give you that feature so the, the comments in youtube live were a, you know it this is really a youtube live either a youtube live upgrade comment or maybe adding a nice chat feature to high fidelity because I couldn't I couldn't react with the comments streaming on YouTube Live as much as I wanted to. Yeah, actually, high fidelity was where I missed it more um, mm-hmm. because I th- I think I think in the normal world, uh, if you're watching something on YouTube, you're supposed to be watching the thing on YouTube, not having whole totally separate side conversations. Now, in my live show, the side conversations are pretty much the best part of watching me create the show because nobody's listening to me or watching what I'm doing, right? So, <laughs> Who is that crazy lady up in the right hand corner? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I think that, that's a little different. But when when I was in the, um, in the uh, lounge in High Fidelity, like eight times I wanted to just put up a picture and finally yeah. uh, Marina Appleman should be called out for, uh, she's the one who found high fidelity and got Definitely. Mike going on this. And, uh, and she said, well, you could change your avatar. So if you change your avatar, whatever you say, your avatar, somebody can uh, click on you. So it would, it would just say, uh, you know, I don't did uh, mine, mine just showed my pod feet, but if you clicked on it, the pod feet became big and it said my name was Allison Sheridan. So you could figure out who people were, which was really nice. Yeah. Um, so somebody asked me, I think it was Corky asked uh, about the new granddaughters. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I got to show a picture, right? I mean, <laughs> sure. maybe it's a good thing we can't put pictures in, <laughs> but uh, Marina said, well, change your avatar. So I did. I took a screenshot of a video of the two granddaughters playing from today and I stuck it in as my avatar and everybody went, oh, and then I changed it back to feet. But that yeah. that's kind of a that's kind of a workaround, right? That's definitely a workaround. It, it worked, but um, yeah, I think it would be nice to have some sort of chat experience. There are things that you may not want to convey verbally, but in text or photo or pictures. Oh, I'll tell you another really important thing. Every once in a while, people had trouble with their audio, and there was somebody called Easy Something. I can't remember. Was it writer. Easy Mike? Easy, Easy Writer. writer. Poor Easy Writer was talking away and we could all hear him and he couldn't hear anybody else. And he kept going, well, I guess this thing doesn't work. And I don't really, and he was getting like really, you know, he's getting really irritated as you would, right? He was really frustrated and we're all going, no, we can hear you. Just, it's your (laughs) mic, you know? And, but you could hear him fiddling around going, well, you know, I'm working on my AirPods and, uh, you know, and Marina mentioned later that there is a bug with, um, using AirPods with Chrome in high fidelity seems to have a problem. Mm. If you were in but, Safari, it worked. But there was no way to convey that to right. him. Right. We couldn't tell him because yeah, there was no chat. Even a simple chat, chat would have Yeah, you that. wanted to just go tap him on the head and say, you know, meet <laughs> me over here and I'll explain it to you. But we couldn't tell him. And yeah. the sad part was he stayed in all day. You'd see him wandering sadly around thinking <laughs> no one could hear him. And uh, I felt terrible. Hopefully we find out uh, who he is and we, we can help him out. Yeah. Or her. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I I heard his voice. It, it was, oh, you did. It was okay. a he. Yeah, and so I was like, oh, that's so sad. But uh, but anyway, I felt you know it certainly wasn't three days of fun and frivolity and and uh, you know playing games with Barry and everything. All none of that was in there. Uh, but for a virtual conference, I think it's it, it was it was phenomenal. Would you? What was your? Oh no, no, no doubt, uh, Mike pulled this off with help, uh, Marina and Dave's help. And, um, I, you know, I, there were a couple people who noted or mentioned, they hope that this comes off again, a virtual Mac stock. Yeah. And, um, so this came up on Twitter and Mike has said, I'm fairly confident there will be another virtual Mac stock at some point, but I can't envision it ever taking the place of the in-person event. And, and I totally agree with that. I mean, there's nothing quite like being with the person, but this is pretty close. This came as close as you probably could with, the, you know, minus the couple features that we noted uh, to having a, a one in real life. Yeah, um, I definitely don't think it takes the place at all of a uh, of a, a full on Mac stock there. There's no doubt it doesn't take the place of that, but it was um it was it was good. If it, it felt it felt like it got a lot of that uh, uh, a lot of that together. Yeah, it, actually, it was uh, Nosella Castaway Allen who asked about yeah, that about whether uh, yeah, who we had never gotten to talk to before and got to talk to for the first time. So yeah, it was good to meet him finally. Yeah, um, you know, someone suggested maybe do this on the half year, like the January time frame, and then in July do the the in person Mac stock. Yeah, yeah, that might be a way for us to get together. So yeah, that that was pretty cool. There was one other thing I wanted to tell everybody what we did. So I think I've told you guys, uh, was it last year or the year before, that uh, I asked Chuck to take a picture of me with somebody with my phone. And unbeknownst to me, he had taken a picture of himself and made him my wallpaper on my phone. And Lovely. It's a great so, picture. When Chuck started his uh, Q and A session with uh, with Mike, he said, uh, "So you know, you heard about Twitter getting hacked this week. Well, my phone got hacked, and he held his phone up, and on his phone was a picture of me in pigtails. <laughs> Your Corona hairdo. <laughs> my Corona hairdo. My hair. I haven't had a, a haircut in four months, and my hair is really long. And I was able to put it in like I'm talking full on pippy long stocking, and uh, I managed to get it on his phone at Macstock. And he, he just held that phone right up to the camera so everyone can see. I hope you put that in the show notes. Yeah, I'm. Uh, you know, there's not going to be full on show notes like usual. There's not going to be a script or anything, but uh, I'm going to have in here uh, a bunch of screenshots so that you can see what it looked like chatting. Actually, I got a screenshot of uh, Corky pretending to be uh, Chuck, and I got a good screenshot of Chuck uh, looking at uh, his phone with uh, complete and utter sadness. So we're good. all my goals were met today. Excellent. And maybe a screenshot of uh, Jitsi, what that looked like? Uh, yeah, actually, I got a picture of all of the, sp uh, the speakers who were there at the end waving goodbye. So uh, yeah, I'll have that in there. All right, cool. Well, thanks for uh, joining me here so we could have a little bit more, uh, you know, live conversation about what it was like and, you know, get the excitement out right now. Sure. It was fun. We should do this again. Okay. <laughs> I'll see you in a few minutes. Okay. See <laughs> Bye, Steve. Welcome to the Nacilla cast. There is no judgment here, although we do have an ever-so-slight Apple bias. 
we will help you to lead a more productive, tranquil life. But we need you to help us. Become a Patreon supporter at whatever amount you find just. Or make a one-time donation to PayPal at podfeet.com. The universe will reward you handsomely for such generosity. May you have a peaceful journey and acquire the SSD of your dreams. it's that time of the week again it's time for security bits with bart bouchats uh there was some interesting stuff this week bart uh, there was there was um nothing i mean the show notes on the one hand quite short but there's some meat here um even if it isn't the world's biggest scroll bar <laughs> or actually no it is a big scroll bar it's a small scroll bar is bad um but there's there's stuff for us to get stuck into um, yeah, i like the meaty weeks better anyway yeah they're more i guess they're more fun because we're not racing through stuff we can give everything a little bit of time it deserves um, so apparently, before we get into the stuff in my show notes, we have listener questions. Um, and uh, given that the first section is called feedback and follow up, the follow up is me finding more news stories. But the feedback is from our wonderful listeners. So I think I was saying to you before we recorded, it, it would be great to encourage this. So if you go to podfeet.com forward slash slack, you'll find a wonderful community in there, including a channel or whatever Slack calls it dedicated to security bits. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's part of the real power of Slack and why it's working so well for the community is, you know, that you're talking to people who care about that subject as a subset of everything podfeed ish. Yeah. Yeah. Because you'd be afraid to post about something nerdy in the general because you're, oh, well, what if I'm distracting people and they're all getting notifications on their phones and they don't care about the fact that there's a button in the terminal to split it in half. And ooh. Right, right, right. So, yeah, it's it's uh, got speci- it, it's basically specific chats that bart cares about right <laughs> those channels yeah, are um pretty much yeah so should i kick in and uh tell you the question that came up yeah absolutely let's go for it all right so to review um two weeks ago we talked about a new method of aut- authentication that i had a- encountered with my bank and you said that you had it too the mm-hmm. basic idea is you on your computer you log into a website and it sends you a notification on your phone screen if you have the app installed for that, that institution. You get a notification on screen, and when you tap the notification, it opens the app for the website, and then it does Face ID to authenticate you, and then you're logged in over on the Mac. Uh, again, obviously, oh, this is works interesting. On so you have a web step. So for me, it's just a push notification that comes in with two buttons, accept or deny, or I think it's confirm or decline, I think is actually the words. No, it's not a web step. The web, the web part is the point. I'm trying to get in on my Mac and okay, my Mac ha- sends so a notification phone. to my phone that pops up that when I tap it, it, no- it checks my face ID and then it lets me in on the Mac. Okay. So the way you said it, I thought you said the web popped up on the phone. No, a notification pops up. A regular ah. Apple iOS type notification pops Perfect. up. Perfect. Yes. Which so is I- good because what that means is it's gone completely out of band, right? That notification has gone through Apple's push notification servers. So that means it's not gone through any sort of standard it's not gone through the bank's website it's not gone through uh sms or anything like that it's gone through an entirely separate channel which is apple's notification channel now i do good. have to have the app for my bank installed on my phone yes because work. the notification from apple's notification servers will have a target 
which will be an app. Okay. Okay. All right. So that's kind of where we last left our heroes. Uh, but uh, <laughs> listener Jill uh, wrote in an interesting question. She says, isn't it quite possible a hacker would try to get in, into your account, your phone would ch- send you the notification, you would instinctively tap it. This is this is the human part, the, the wet bag of sand or whatever that we are. And uh, you would instinctively tap it. And since I've got face ID, it would look right at me and authenticate for the bad guy. Uh, okay, well, on my phone, I would have to really not just tap the notification, I'd have to actually proactively click the accept rather than reject button. And it's got the logo of my bank. And if that pops up when I'm not in the middle of doing something with that purple logo, I don't think that's realistic that I would just instinctively click so on it. you versus, say, Allison, <laughs> right? Different people, different. I mean, I I could picture myself just tapping it. So what my answer back to uh, to Jill was, it seems to me that I would have to be vigilant. I have to be cognizant that that could happen. That if I see something from my bank pop up, that doesn't mean, hey, your monthly statement is here. Maybe you should click here. I mean, that well, you're not me just, I mean, just clicking on the notification isn't enough, right? You, when you click the notification, you actually have to click some sort of button that says yes. You know, I'm gonna or, I'm gonna run it again uh, while we go into the yeah. uh, while we go into the second uh, the second question because I'm pretty sure that it wasn't the case that I just look at the notification and it's done. I mean, once okay, I, I tap guess, it, I guess that would be up to the app developer how they decide to do the UI. So in my case, there's no way I can accidentally do it. The the way my app works is I it's not a case that Face ID is enough. I have to proactively click the accept as opposed to reject as well as proving myself. Okay, I'm about to send the push notification. A device is requested to log into your blah, blah, blah accounts. Do you want to authorize it? And I tap that. And it's going to open up my my bank. Ah, a new login was requested by the device below, and it describes my device. Do you want to accept it, yes or no? Well, gosh, if I just tested it when Jill asked me, I'd have known the answer to that. (laughs) I guess it's conceivable, though, if the bank would have done a bad job of writing the UI, once the app opens, right, once once you click the push notification, you've now handed back to code written by your bank, right? The notification has opened the app, and now you're in code your bank wrote. And if your bank wrote the code badly, it could do the 1Password-like thing, where as soon as Face ID recognizes you, 1Password opens, right? So you could theoretically write the code that when the one when the Face ID API tells the app thumbs up, the app could then send the signal to the bank's web server saying let them in. But that would be very bad UI. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good. Um, good. That, that's good. question number one. Let's hope if your bank does not do that, I would suggest maybe not using that, I suppose. Um, or complaining because they can just do an app update, right? I mean, that is a, that's the kind of thing where all of the hard work is getting the infrastructure for the notifications and getting the bank's website to talk to Apple servers and getting the app into the app store. If you then say, by the way, you should probably put a confirm step in. That is such a small ask for the bank to tweak what they've already done that I'm sure. They would probably do. You okay. Know. Okay, good, good. All right. Well, Steve has a uh, listener, Steve, also known as husband Steve, uh, also has a question. If he says, if the site offers you the option, uh, like ours does, of this dedicated phone-based authentication method, but the other option is an SMS, isn't your account just as susceptible to SIM swapping as if they didn't offer the dedicated phone app? Yes. <laughs> okay. Weakest link, right? And having just had the chain on my bike 
Snap a few days ago, I am very aware of the concept of weakest links. And yes, is the answer. Like a security fallback becomes the security level because the attacker is is going to be is the attacker is going to say, what is the least path of resistance to what I want? And if your bank says, well, you can go to this really difficult security channel with 20 million guards who'll cavity search you, or you can walk through this open back door, why would anyone choose to go through the hard route? Yeah. Okay. So I'm afraid to say the bank should not, or you as the user should have a checkbox in your account to disable SMS. Um, yeah, it doesn't look like we, we are, uh, it just, we have a quest, well, we have a choice of you can request a temporary pin. And if you do that, it says, which one of these phone numbers do you want to text? Is that temporary pin full power? Because my bank has the option for a read only mode, which is less secured. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen a read only mode. Okay. So uh, it's an interesting, do you know something? Since it's your account, it's perfectly legal for you to click that button and see what happens. Okay. Because so you're not hacking, right? It's your account. You're authorized. Okay. So I'm going to click send, and it's probably going to come in. Oh, I just turned off notifications. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. There we go. All right. So I'm uh, typing in this pin. I'll read it out loud to everybody. No, I won't. Um, well, I would hope it changes. <laughs> I don't trust anybody to be that smart. I'll sign in. And the option is coming up and let's see, what can I do? So read only as opposed to like make a payment or something. Yeah. So in the case of my bank, I can make a payment to something I've already set up, but I can't add a new payment without full authentication. It like refuses to let me send money to a stranger without okay. going through many hoops, actually. Okay. All right. Well, uh, this is probably getting too deep into the, uh, into the question, but uh I'm, I'm going to stop. As a general rule, let's imagine it wasn't a bank. Let's imagine it was your GitHub account or something. Um, a lot of places will give you, PayPal is a perfect example. So PayPal has finally started to do uh, authenticator-based authentication again here in Ireland. Mm. And they give me the option of one, either, or both. But Steve is completely correct that if you choose both, you may as well choose SMS only from a security point of view. Okay. So when they give you the choice, you untick the SMS box as well as ticking the OTP box. Okay. All right. Well, that would be good if we uh, if we had that option. I will keep my eye out for it. The bank may now be in a transitional phase, right? They may be nudging their customers towards accepting this weird app thing. Mm -hmm. And so what you may find is that for six months, they're happy enough to let you fall back to SMS, and you're going to get a letter in the post saying, so you've all been using the app for the past six months. Well, from you know December 1st to whatever, this is now the only method. So you may find that if you ask them, if you query it, you may get an answer like that. Very cool. Well, I did actually manage to, uh, through some finagling, have a conversation with the um, CIO and their security team of my financial institution. And so I probably could reconnect with them, say, good on you. This looks like it's working really good. So you are going to disable that SMS message thing pretty soon, right? <laughs> Or at least give me the option to disable it from my account, because maybe there are people for whom, if you you know, if you're an older customer with only a dumb phone, SMS auth is still better than nothing. Yeah, good point. So really, it's that you you the advanced user should have the power to switch to purely secure. It's really what matters. Okay, great. Well, that was fun. Cool. That was fun. That was fun. So. 
everyone remember slack podfee.com forward slash slack it's good good fun in there yeah and if you tag so, me and bart in there that'll let us know that there's a question for security bits right I do also have, you can configure Slack to notify you of keywords, and I have given it the very broad keyword, security. Oh, that's cool. It, it does flag a lot of false positives, but I do get a notification every time someone mentions security. Oh, cool. I think I have programming as well. Which and is to, also to be broad. honest, I read every single message and respond to almost everything, so you don't really have to tag me at all. <laughs> In ideal times, I would like to do the same because it's a really fun community, but... It's summer silly season, so I'm afraid I'm a lot more selective these days. I sort of show up from time to time, read everything, post a few cool things, and then sod off. Right, um, right. <laughs> so other feedback and follow-up then. So we're into the follow-up part of feedback and follow-up. Um, at, at the one of the big security conferences last year, Apple made a bunch of announcements, and one of them was that they would be creating a special iPhone for registered security researchers, which would basically be pre-jailbroken for them. It would give them full root access, so they wouldn't have to hack their own way in, which from a security researcher's point of view is extremely valuable. And that is now gone from being a hypothetical to being a real thing. It's now a program you can apply for. You have to prove your identity because obviously you don't give these kind of hacked phones out to just anyone. Uh, but it's real. So those devices now exist and security researchers can get their hands on them and do even more great security researchers to keep iOS even more secure than it already is. So, yay. Love it. That's going to be fun to watch, right? It is. Um and we come to the inevitable elephant in every room these days, our COVID updates. So Apple have done something which is not strictly COVID related. It's being reported as if it is, because let's be honest, if I say the word health to anyone today, everyone's going to think of coronal shaped things with spiky bits. Mm -hmm. That's sort of how it is. But Apple have added a new feature to their health app which as well as allowing you to do things like enter exact medical readings like SpO2, your oxygen level, your pulse level, your BMI, you know, all of those things we already have. There's now a new section where you can enter symptoms. And so if you have aches and pains of any sort of sort ongoing, you can actually track them, which is really useful for a million and one things that have nothing to do with pandemics. Hmm. Um, because that will actually, like when your doctor asks you, so how have you been? That's a really hard question to answer in the abstract. And we're human beings. So if I've had a bad day yesterday, I am going to project that into my memory and I'm going to think I've had a bad two months. You're if also I had just going to say fine. <laughs> oh, there's, uh, yes. Being an Irish person, that is the answer to everything. How right. are you, Grant? I'm hum Grant. Human I'm nature. Grant. It's everybody, yeah. Bart, not just Ireland. <laughs> We were particularly bad about it. It's like frowned upon not to do so. It's like part of the social contract. If someone asks you it how you are, too. they actually don't care. They're it just saying too. hello. Yeah, it absolutely is here too. Everybody, the answer to that question is fine. How are you? It's yeah, never, it's, I, I have the gout. <laughs> I'm grand or the classic, ah, could be worse. <laughs> Which is probably code for the world is ending. Right? Ah, could be worse. Uh, anyway, um, but if you can actually track it, when you actually go in and the doctor says, so how has your knee been? If you actually have a log, you can actually say, well, actually, it's been fine the last two weeks, but three weeks ago it was really bad or whatever. Unless you actually track it, you won't know because you're human. And so it's just really useful in the general sense. But where it's really important at the moment is if you're someone who has a pre-existing condition, which has, as part of your normal existence, you have COVID-y symptoms, you are prone to shortness of breath because you have asthma or something. 
Well, if you start to track this when you're not sick, you will know what normal is for you and you'll be tracking it. And so when you start to become more short of breath or more coughing, or basically if it changes, you actually have a way of knowing that because you're tracking it. And so it's important in the general sense to track your symptoms just to help your doctor help you. But in these times, it's probably twice as useful, which is probably why it's getting a lot of covid news coverage. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I wonder whether um, I may have helped with this. You know how Apple has been running health studies that you can sign up for if you want to, like there's a heart health study and a couple others. I know of them in principle because unfortunately Ireland isn't in any of them at the moment. I, I can't take part as much as I would, I would but I can't. So I, I've been participating in them and it sounds a lot like the the questions we've been asking in the studies. Those are starting to go into the, the metrics ah. that you're talking about. Because, um, for example, I, I thought I just signed up for heart and I forget what the other one was. But it'll so it'll say things like, do you have trouble, you know, walking a short distance? How often, you know, how often have you felt that in the last 30 days? What have you felt? Things like that. But then a lot of them are getting into mental health. And I don't think I I don't remember whether I signed up for mental health one, but it'll say like in the last month, uh, have you had trouble making social connections with other people? How often? You know, once in a while, really often, you know, and those questions, of course, are interesting being quarantined at all or you know essentially in lockdown but well, uh, if i was doing a heart study though that to me would be an indicator of stress and all sorts of things and i'd be very interested to correlate that with pulse blood pressure and all the other stuff yeah it, it was um it was uh it was it sounds very much like this so it sounds like they're they're getting useful data out of that you know and you, you have, also, they, they rearrange the questions too so you can't tell what the right answer is like sometimes that's, one that's is bad science. and one is... Yeah, <laughs> that know, is good science. Um, yeah. No, what it strikes me as is they're obviously learning how to store that kind of information in an efficient way that's meaningful. And they're now bringing that knowledge back to the regular app. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. So that's cool. That is extremely cool. And I helped. Yay! <laughs> I, I would. I help in principle. I am game for it, but I haven't had the opportunity. Yeah. Um. Also, Apple, and I think this is U.S. only because it's CDC based and your center for disease control centers for disease control do not apply outside of the U.S. But if Apple Maps detects you in an airport coming into the country, it will tell you, by the by, here's the CDC guidance for returning travelers. Huh. That is, you know, that's a good, you know, tell you information that's important in the right context. That is when I would need to know that. So that's very clever of you, Apple. Nicely done. Yeah. The saga of the Google slash Apple API continues. Um, I am happy to say that Ireland's app continues to, to be successful. Good. It, the rollout is continuing well. And the, we now know from some interviews in some of the news articles linked that the app has succeeded in catching some cases. So it's actually working. Oh, fantastic. Um, it is. And it's developed by a software company um, in rural Ireland, actually. And uh, they're now getting calls from other nations and even from some U.S. states asking them if they will develop an app based on the same brains, et cetera, for other countries. And given that Apple and Google's API is universal and the app uses Apple and Google's API, the knowledge that company has built up is directly transferable. 
So fingers crossed, some good Irish software helps many other countries around the world. Oh, that would be that would be swell. Very good. It would. And quite close to home, Northern Ireland is about to launch an app this week based on the same code by the same company. And the great thing is because it's based off the same code, et cetera, it's going to be compatible with the Irish app. And so people crossing the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, their app will basically switch servers automatically as they move from country to country. Hmm. So that whole problem of crossing borders has been dealt with. And that's a wonderful segue to some news out of America. The Association of Public Health Laboratories is building what they hope to be a nationwide system to facilitate the same kind of cooperation between the apps for individual states. Because if you're living, you know, somewhere like Minneapolis and St. Paul is an extreme example, but they're by no means alone. Like There's plenty of places in the United States where people cross state lines all the time. And so what you really need is for someone to act as a central clearinghouse where the apps can cooperate with each other. And APHL have basically said, we're going to be that someone and we're going to be supporting the Apple Google API so that states who do so can interact with each other. And Microsoft are joining the party. I think if we can find a role for Amazon, we have a mole. Uh, But Microsoft are joining the party and they're going to be actually hosting the hardware to make all of this go. So that is good infrastructure. Nice. Yes. Unfortunately, 9to5Mac did a little bit of digging to see how many people would be making use of this infrastructure. And what they found is that only four states currently have plans to do so. Yeah, that's just sitting there, four states. And I don't. that's been that way for quite some time, right? I really hope that there's lots of work going on behind the scenes and it's just behind the scenes. And that there'll be a big press release and lots of governors standing up going, ta-da! Yeah. But that may be in vain. That might just be my glass, you know, one eighth full or something. But anyway. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, despite many counterexamples, the Australians consider or continue to blame Apple for the fact that they can't make an app. <sighs> yeah, that argument is so paper thin at this stage. It's like, see all these counterexamples? That's why you're wrong. So also in our Slack, um, uh, oh, shoot. Klaus Wolf has been talking about the uh, German version of this, and they are also complaining that uh, Apple is is uh, making it too hard. And I I don't know whether they're using the Apple Apple Google API. They are. They are. Um, so, but they were complaining specifically about problems with background, trying to do stuff in the background, which led me to believe they weren't. Well, they switched to the, they were one of the countries to switch. So them, Germany, France, and the UK were really cranky that they had to go to Apple. And then they were like, oh, okay, fine, we'll go to Apple. Mm -hmm. So they are using the Google Apple API. Okay. Well, I'm not sure then what the, what the problem, why they're so annoyed. Hmm. I don't, I I don't know enough, actually. Um, The German news tends to be in German. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, meine Deutsch ist nicht sehr gut, <laughs> which I think I just butchered completely just to prove a point. Um, sorry, Klaus. Uh, I sort of think if I speak Dutch with a bad accent, it's German, um, <laughs> which could you buy a strangely large amount, actually. But anyway. I love it. Uh, social media also continues to evolve. Two good news stories about Facebook this week. Oh, come um, on. 
Facebook Messenger is getting that lovely feature a la 1Password where it you can now have it lock the Messenger app so that even if you hand someone your phone to look something up on Wikipedia or whatever, they can't sneakily go in and look at your messages. They will need to use Touch ID or Face ID to get into the Messages app, which is a lovely feature. And they're also improving their Messenger rooms to add live broadcasting. So it's another option for, you know, that cocktails together over the internet kind of you know, physically distancing, socially together stuff we're all doing now. So you think it's okay to to use something from Facebook to do that? Only if you're already in that cesspool. If you're already <laughs> yeah. in the cesspool, you may as well enjoy the cocktail in the bar in the middle of the pool. Okay. <laughs> you know? I wish I named it my episodes. <laughs> <laughs> that will put too much pressure on me and then I lose all my creativity. Uh, so we have two deep dives. The first one, the European Court of Justice has ended the EU-US data privacy shield. So this is a long saga. So way back in the year 2000, the European Commission created something called Safe Harbor. And the idea was to make it easy for companies to send information about EU citizens over and back to the US to encourage the burgeoning internet to keep burgeoning. Basically, 2000, you just had the dot-com collapse, and everyone's like, ooh, we kind of need to stimulate this digital economy stuff. But what about if we just make it easier for uh, American and European data to flow over and back? And so they did. And the whole idea was based on the notion that, sure, European law and American law, sure, it's similar enough. If the company are compliant with US law, it'll be grand. <laughs> How'd and that work out that, for them? That was dubious from day one, frankly. But between 2000 and 2020, that has become dubiouser and dubiouser, if there is such a word. And in 2016, the dubiousness hit a critical mass. And thanks to a court case brought by Max Schrems, the extremely active um, Austrian campaigner, uh, the European Court of Justice ended safe harbor. And as a result of that, the European Commission had a second go and they replaced the now killed safe harbor with the EU US privacy shield, which was a sort of a more a more stripped down version of safe harbor with a few more minor hurdles, but still built around this notion that if you just stick to these really simple guidelines, you'll be grand. But 2016 is before GDPR. So as soon as GDPR came out, we all knew Max Rems would challenge this law again and it would take some time to work its way through the courts and eventually courts would have to decide whether this privacy shield was compatible with the GDPR. Well, now we know. Nope. Nope, 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 nope. So the privacy shield, or, yeah, the privacy shield is now also dead. So the 5,378 organizations that were using the privacy shield to avoid having to do the hard work of having proper user-facing policies and asking for consent, now have to do what everyone else on planet Earth has to do. And if you're going to use EU citizens' data, you need to get proper consent. How much time do they have to start to comply? That I haven't been able to figure out because no one... It's actually really hard to get sane reporting on this. I'm rather hoping that... Um, ah, know a little more. Uh, oh, oh, Tom Merritt? Tom Merritt will, will give us the lowdown and do all the hard work because I've been doing my best to read up on this and it tends to get very legalese very quickly. 
For anybody um, who doesn't know, Tom Merritt, who does the Daily Tech News show, has started to do a show, a podcast called Know a Little More, where he does, just like in like 10 or 15 minutes, he does a deep dive on a single thing. Like I just learned about the ultra wideband, uh, what ultra wideband is today from Know a Little More. It is really, yeah, really good. Yeah, that was good. a good episode. I, I learned that out from I don't know if you can do this in 10 or 15 minutes. So. Would you be surprised? Because didn't he do Safe Harbor? Uh, sorry, we all the stuff to do with Section 230 of yeah, the yeah, US. Yeah, did, he did do Safe Harbor. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So if you can do that, if you do Section 230. But he also tried this. to do Wi-Fi 6, and I found my head spinning from that one. <laughs> I really like that one. It's in the show notes as a suggested reading later on. Uh, suggested listening? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I, that one I left as confused as when I started, but all of the other ones have been fantastic. I got it got right into me. I um, I, I uh, just completely I learned understood two things. Them. Actually, no, I learned one thing for sure. Even if I don't have any Wi-Fi 6 devices, having a Wi-Fi 6 router will make my Wi-Fi 5 devices work quicker. Yes, yes, I Ooh. did learn that. I did learn that. But there was a lot of, a lot of numbers and letters and acronyms flying around. And to be honest, that was the only question I really had, right? Is it worth my spending money on a Wi-Fi 6? Actually, that was the other thing he said. You know, if your router is broken, try get a Wi-Fi 6 one. If your router is not broken, wait a while. Yeah. Like, well, my router is not broken. I shall wait a while. <laughs> Actually, there we go. We'll start a podcast with just, here's what I learned from Noah Littlemore. It'll be 30 seconds. <laughs> so Noah Morsel more. Right. <laughs> this is summary of Noah Littlemore. Um, Something else to say about this this judgment, because a lot of people's heads exploded. Um, so all this does is put the U.S. on the same footing as every other nation on Earth. And the other thing is this doesn't cover the information you or I enter into these services. So this is not about the photos I upload to Flickr or the files we share via Dropbox or the tweets we post. This is about the stuff the trackers collect about us and then move across EU borders into America. And so now that has to be done with our consent, as it okay. would if you were a Canadian company or a Brazilian company or an Indian company or an Australian company, dot, 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 dot. There are hundreds of nations on earth. So all this does is put those 5,378 organizations on the same footing as the millions of other organizations on planet Earth. So it's really not end of the world stuff. And the end result is likely to be like GDPR, like the uh, Californian law, a little bit more transparency for everyone, because it's just easier for corporations to just do the right thing everywhere than to only do the right thing for Europeans. OK, good. Yeah. Next up is the Twitter hack. Um, this is kind of an interesting story because I don't know if I need matches or a fire extinguisher. <laughs> it's one or the other. <laughs> Yeah, maybe I need both. I guess in the short term, there's nothing. There's no reason for us to panic because this was a a single attack, very highly targeted against people who are way, way, way more important than any of us. So there's no immediate danger. Uh, but the bit that has me a little more worried is this kind of proves how vulnerable Twitter is, and also sort of underlines how much power they have, and. If, you know, so right now these attackers use a, a hack on Twitter to try and get some Bitcoin and to have some lols. It seems they were early, late teens, early 20s, basically some young guys having a bit of crack. What if someone competent and malicious were to pull this off at a critical moment, say a presidential election? 
that could do some real damage. So that kind of has me a little bit worried. By the way, I'm going to I'm going to correct you because I always do it on the good stuff. Um, For all we know, these were a bunch of teenage girls. So these could have been women or guys. That is true. The the pseudonyms. Right. Yeah. Mm. I must. Yes, you're you're probably (laughs) right. I don't remember if the New York Times article used pronouns. Yeah. And if they did use pronouns, I don't know if they'd use pronouns based on assumptions or based on knowledge. Right. So let's just be gender neutral. Right. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's do that. Bad or good. Got to do it. Got to do it for everything. Right. Even the bad stuff. Yes, indeed. So what we know is that there were attacks on 130 accounts of high profile people, like proper high profile people. Apple, I think Bill Gates was on the list. And 45 of those attacks succeeded. Hmm. We also know that one of the things that the attackers, so one of the things they did was they posted out a Bitcoin scam. Basically, send me some Bitcoin and I'll send you back twice as much coming from President Obama. That that kind of stuff, which is obviously a scam, right? Send me money and I'll send you some more money. No, I'll send you money and that's the last time I'm ever going to hear from you. That's how is it work. Darwin the people who fell for this attack? I mean... <laughs> To be honest, yes, that's cyber Darwinism for sure. I mean, that is insane that anyone would would do that, S- send money to someone over the internet on the promise that they'll send you back more money. That's not how life works, even if it is Barack Obama's Twitter account, and if it does have a blue check. The other thing we know is that as well as doing that, the attackers also attempted to use the new GDPR-inspired functionality we now have to download all of our data to down to attempt to download data out of the compromised accounts. Now that download functionality, as you may or may not know, usually you click the button to say generate me a report, and then they say we'll email you in a day or two when we've had time to create this massive big zip file for you. So because the attack was spotted very quickly and because Twitter acted very quickly, none of these reports were actually delivered. But the button was pushed which meant that had it succeeded, the attackers would have basically gotten every single direct message from those accounts. And so if hacking into from John or, Podesta... From or to those accounts? Right, exactly, yeah. Okay. So everything that you would see if you went into the direct message is pain. Hmm. So we saw how much came out of hacking John Podesta's Gmail account by sending him a phishing message last election cycle. Imagine if every single thing some high-profile politician did on Twitter through DMs was just published one day. Be huge, especially if you selectively publish it instead of, you know, cherry-pick stuff, take it out of context. I mean, it could do immense damage. So that's kind of where the hair on fire bit comes in. And the other thing to say is this wasn't a technical compromise, and I'm not sure whether that makes me happy or not happy either. Because if it had been a technical problem, then you'd be kind of going, oh, Jesus, those Twitter people don't have their act together. That's very scary. But it was a human attack. They basically bribed some Twitter employees by the looks of things. So Twitter didn't say it was bribery. Twitter just said it was social engineering. But the New York Times are reporting that, no, they just basically a Twitter employee was paid and he handed over the stuff. So, so that, that seems to be um, an evolving story of who actually did that. Uh, like, was it an employee? Was it a set of employees? Um, that seems to be evolving over time. How many employees had access to be able to do this reset? I mean, that is interesting. But I guess the bottom line kind of remains the same that it's an insider threat. It's basically, in this case, it would appear it was true malice. 
But you could also imagine something similar succeeding through trickery rather than through, you know, bribery. Um, so you could imagine it succeeding through well-done spearfishing. Obviously, you have to be quite skillful at the spearfishing. You'd have to know who to target. And like you say, depending on whether you needed to get one employee or five employees to sort of, you know, the, the, the digital equivalent of the nuclear submarine where you have two keys and they have to be turned at the same time. Um, it's... It, right. Yeah. It, like I say, I don't know whether I am comforted by the fact that it wasn't technical or whether I'm disturbed by the fact that it wasn't technical. <laughs> I have you know, matches and a fire extinguisher. Not yeah. quite sure. Don't worry. They did. Um, uh, I heard they're trying to hire a new CIO. Huh. Or okay. CF, C, uh, CISO, maybe. CIO is it a chief yeah. information officer, chief security officer. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Because they think maybe it's, they aren't doing the best job. Well, so maybe the fact that these guys were just after some lols and some Bitcoin, maybe this was a service to us all. Yeah, we got real lucky. Yeah, it, it's as I say, I really I couldn't put an icon next to this story to sum it up in an emoji. I don't know what to make of it. It's certainly interesting. Yeah, yeah. So that's definitely deep dive territory. Um. Jumping into action alerts, um, first on the patchy, patchy, patch, patch, there is a major wormable flaw in Windows servers. So while that doesn't affect all of our listeners, I'm sure there are some of our listeners who work in small organizations where they are the IT person. If you run Windows servers, patchy, patchy, patch, patch, and don't delay about it because wormable means that without you doing anything, it can spread through your network. So that's the Yeah, those are the kind worst kind, right? Yeah, on the scale of bad things to have happened, that's very much top of the list. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch. Probably also fairly high up on the list is exploits of routers or routers, depending on your side of the Atlantic. If you have an Asus router slash router, you should patchy, patchy, patch, patch, because there's some uh, known problems which allow your firmware to be reflashed with malware, which is probably not what you want on the most privileged device on your network. Meanwhile, Apple have patched pretty much all of their operating systems, and a lot of it is about new features, like the health one we talked about earlier. Uh, but there are also security updates contained in those OS bumps. So even if you don't care about the new features, patchy, patchy, patch, patch to get your security updates. So I haven't uh, seen a, an update on my, on my iPhone lately. They, <laughs> I remember, they usually take about a week to come in if they're not too critical. Yeah, there it is. OS 13.6. I think they should tell you right away. No, because then they're denial of service their own servers. Yeah, 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 yeah. If it's that important. Well, the thing is, when the really, really critical updates actually do tend to come out quicker. Okay. So I think there is a bit of triage. I think there's some intelligence going on in it. I, I don't think it's quite so dumb. Uh, and then Adobe have pushed critical updates for Bridge, Photoshop, and something I've never heard of called Prelude. But... Apparently, if you're running Adobe stuff, patchy, patchy, patch, patch. Uh, worthy warnings, then. Um, this kind of goes into the category of just because a company's website says they do something doesn't mean they do it. So there were seven VPNs, which were all based in Hong Kong, were all powered by the same software, and were basically just rebranded versions of the same VPN, uh, which all said on their website, we don't log anything. 
And unfortunately, not only did they log it, but they're actually really bad at running their logs. And so they had one of those insecure database server things that are so common in the modern internet. And they exposed all of the logs they quote unquote don't have. Uh, Yeah, exactly. So really, the takeaway here, I mean, these these companies are very much targeted at the Hong Kong market, so it's probably not going to affect any of our listeners directly. What I would say is the takeaway here is that it's not good enough for a VPN to say on its website that it does all the right things. What you actually need is for a reputable third-party audit, which is where the, the big names really shine because they get companies like PricewaterhouseCooper to audit them. So their website says they do X and then PricewaterhouseCooper come in and verify that they actually genuinely do X. How would and you know you whether have... that had happened, Bart? I mean, I use a VPN. I don't know that they've been vetted by PricewaterhouseCooper. Well, if you search for them in security news, you'll see that um, all the big, you know, the big ones make a really big deal about having been audited and the tech sites search will them, give you that in the reviews. Search for them so, in security news. The review sites are very suspicious, though, because it is really, really, really easy to find a site that says top five VPNs and they've been sold. They're being paid to push those VPNs. Yeah. So when I say review sites, I don't really mean those. That's a bad choice of words on my part. I mean the reputable tech news sites like ours, Technica, and stuff. So what you're looking for, for the is name reputation. of so search Wait. for the name of the VPN you're using at ours, Technica. I'm trying to narrow it down to. I know right, you yes, know what exactly. sites to check, but I don't know. It, okay, search for the VPN on a site you trust. You shouldn't. I don't know sites. I don't. I don't follow the security sites. I follow where you tell me to go, and I think a lot of people are like that. But then you stick to the big name stuff: your Ars Technicas, your Security Nows, your um, the Register. Even though I think they're often sensationalistic, they are factual. Um, your Naked Security Blog, your Sophos. Hmm. What you're basically you don't want self-referential. What you don't want is to. If a car salesman tells you that the world's best car salesman and they give you all the best safety, they're the last person on the planet you should be believing. You really, really don't want self-referential. That that's I, 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 I understand that. I just don't know how to find my VPN if it hasn't been written about in the last year. If it was written about when it came out, I you know I just, I don't know how to find out that PricewaterhouseCooper had, for example, checked it. I I don't. You make an assumption, I think, that all of us know these links and know all of the sites to look at. When I, I, Very often I sit down and go, I'm going to check the sites Bart does. And then I think, okay, God, I guess I'll go to Security Notes, security Bits Notes and find the ones he goes to. Because they aren't where I go all the time. Because I, I rely on you to tell me. You yeah. spoon feed me. <laughs> all I can say is it's about reputation. And so uh, like if, you, if you Google for the name of a big VPN, like ExpressVPN, you're going to find lots of news sources you recognize talking about them. If you Google my shady VPN, you're not going to find that. So just Google the name of my. Yeah, I mean, it's the same as if you were if you were buying anything else. You have to do your due diligence. OK. I, I mean, there is no magic wand, I'm afraid. Um, be careful and 
who is recommending matters is, is the takeaway. Right. And that means I need to have the knowledge of what websites are good at saying that. So, for example, I just looked for Encrypt.me and, and one of them is thebestvpn.com. Well, I'm not going to click that, but that's only because I interviewed the CEO of Encrypt.me who told me that these a lot of these review sites are paid to say these are the top five. So okay. it, it's it's harder than you think is all I'm saying. I was keep I looking. Definitely didn't intend to suggest it was easy. In fact, if anything, my point was to make you even more suspicious and to tell you it's even harder than you think. Okie dokie. Encrypt me. I'm curious now. VPN. So if I, I found I that, found TechRadar.com having one. TechRadar, PC Mag. There's there's a, there's a big name. Um, CNN. But boing boing. And what we're looking for is not whether it's popular or whether it what we're trying to find out is is this a good one is it from a security standpoint exactly so pc so mag review would be one that jumps out at me it's like okay well pc mag have been around since the stone age digitally so they're not fly by night so mm -hmm. they okay good pros cons yeah okay all right i'll go so, through that yeah so basically what i'm saying is if a website tells you it's brilliant that's the last place you should believe it from. So these VPNs on their website, on their FAQ, said all of the right things. Oh, sure. But that's the one place where it doesn't matter what you say. Because yeah, and they're, they're sure of researching anything. <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. I mean, that was the takeaway I was hoping people would get. That going to, if you want a VPN and that VPN tells you it's brilliant, that's meaningless. As proven by these seven VPNs who all told you they were brilliant and in fact were lying. They were absolutely not brilliant. They were the opposite of brilliant. Okay. Uh, if you have been a customer of the DNA company Jedmatch, uh, they kind of sort of been hacked quite badly. Um, so if you are one of those people, you should follow the link in the show notes and read more. Jedmatch, I've never heard of that. They are the ones who found the Golden State Killer. Or oh. sorry, the ones whose data the FBI yeah. used to find the Golden State Killer. Okay. And an odd one from Apple. They have felt the need to put out a warning on their support page to tell people if you have physical webcam covers that are anything thicker than a sheet of paper, don't close your laptop or you could break your screen. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, especially since we had just found these really cool, really thin little covers that you could slide over. They were really slick, and we bought, I don't know, five of them or something. It was really, really nifty. They're not as thin of a, as a piece of paper, so they're gone now. So sad. Yeah. They were like five bucks, so it wasn't a big deal, but still, it was it was a nice little solution. Yeah, and so my thinking is Apple wouldn't have put this up if this wasn't a thing. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this has caused stuff to break. But what it, the two things occurred to me. So one, this this is there for a reason. And the second thing that occurred to me, what's as thick as a piece of paper that could cover my webcam efficiently? A post-it note. Well, you, yeah, exactly. You post-it note, you tear a little piece or, or you cut neatly a piece off the sticky bit of the post-it note and hey, presto, problem, problem yeah, solved. Yeah, but that's a crappy solution. You got to tear it, it, it. Now you want to use your webcam. You peel it off. Now the sticky's gone. Okay, now find another one. Now cut it to the right. Oh, shoot. It's a little too big. You know, blah, 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 blah. I just let it. I, I let it ride. I was going to say, I don't bother my backside, to be mm -hmm. honest, because if my webcam is compromised, I have way bigger problems. Way bigger problems. I have let my security down far too much in 20 million other ways. And 
I have bigger problems to worry about because I'm VPN into work. Um, so the fact that they can see that my room is a mess is not my concern. <laughs> Notable news. Just the one story. It has an American flag and it's a good news story. T-Mobile have announced a whole bunch of updated tools to help their customers protect themselves from robocalls and scams. So first off, they had no choice in this, right? They were mandated by Congress. All U.S. carriers have been to implement stir, stir and shaken, which is a mechanism for effectively cryptographically verifying caller ID so that caller ID can't lie as easily. So everyone who's a T-Mobile customer and everyone indeed in America is going to get actually accurate caller ID, which is most useful. But as well as actually accurate caller ID, T-Mobile are also offering a service where they will war they will proactively warn you of probable robocalls and scams and even offer to block them for you automatically. And while a lot of companies charge for that, T-Mobile are going to give it to everyone for free if they want it. Hmm. Nice. So that, that is nice. That is, yeah, I can't find a reason for that not to be a good story. So yay. In terms of top tips, uh, last time we had two really good articles from iMore about setting up two-factor authentication on various websites. Well, if you're a Skype user, iMore have continued their streak of such articles and there's now a how to set up two-factor authentication for your Skype account. So Ooh, I need to do that. That is the one account that actually got hacked on me. It did. And given that, you, yeah, that, that was a dangerous one for you. Yeah, I lost a couple hundred bucks, but PayPal gave it back, oddly enough. So. There you go. Thank goodness. Yeah. There was no guarantee. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, we've already mentioned the wonderful uh, Know a Little More About Wi-Fi 6, excellent explainers, and just basically that whole podcast series I recommend. Yeah. Um, Small investment, large payoff. Exactly. Tom Merritt, smart guy. There we go. That's our review. <laughs> yes. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, interesting insights. Um, first off... Mac Observer did a good overview of some of the security research into TikTok. Um, basically, the TLDR version, if you can't even read the summary, is TikTok is a privacy and security train wreck. At first, I thought it was good news because there were, it was one of the organizations gave them a privacy and a security score of 98 point something and 97 point something. And I thought, ooh, that's good. Only a high score means they're terrible. <laughs> so it's actually an insecurity score. Oh. And it's like, oh, oh, so yeah, not good. And in related news, Reset, another podcast I love, they've unfortunately gone from bi-weekly to weekly, uh, but they've retained their quality. So I guess I'm happy with that. Uh, but it, I, I liked them a lot and it was nice when there were more of them. But anyway, it's now a weekly podcast. Uh, they have dedicated an episode to the obvious question. Is it actually possible for the US government to ban TikTok? Is there an actual mechanism other than hot air and headlines? Hmm. And it's nowhere near as simple as you might think. So 20-minute episode of the Reset podcast, if you're curious as to the practicalities of actually potentially banning TikTok. And thanks to the Californian Consumer Protection Act, the CCPA, we now know for sure, what we've kind of known anyway, that lots and lots of third-party companies use fa Facebook's API to tell Facebook about stuff you do with them in non-Facebook venues. So we know that Facebook have an API for accepting information from outside. And of course that API is being used. And we now know that companies like DoorDash and lots and lots of other companies do indeed do so. So reporter Thomas Smith basically used the CCPA to get his data file. 
he found the folder where they include all of that stuff and then was able to see all of the companies he's done business with who have been sending stuff to Facebook behind his back. It's fascinating in a, oh, that confirms all of my fears kind of way. Yeah, I was going to say in the ultimate creepiness. Yeah. So now we switch to happier stuff. Well, okay, first is a neutral story. Uh, an interesting and well-written little article over an intigo by Kirk McElhern, who is a photographer who I recently interviewed on Let's Talk Photography, uh, but he's also a security guy. Um, are smart rocks really that smart? And Wait, it's smart not a rocks? yes, no. Smart locks. Oh, yeah. smart locks. <laughs> I heard smart rocks. What? Ooh, that's they're smart rocks. Thing. That's cool. Uh, smart it sort of reminds me of Stargate. A lot of their tech just looked like a rock, but they were very smart rocks. Um. Uh, it's not the kind of article where you get a yes, no answer. Instead, it basically, you know, actually smart locks come in all shapes and sizes, ranging from brilliant to terrible. And here are the kind of problems that you could have with a smart lock. And so it's actually quite insightful and helps you think about a specific lock rather than just giving you a thumbs up, thumbs down for the vague concept of smart locks. Um, so I actually thought it was a nicely done article. So I just thought it was worth linking to if anyone's considering dipping their toe in that water. Um I know it's something you put a lot of thought into and you, you know, you spent a lot of time choosing a lock that works really well for you. So, right, you right. know, others may find it useful. And finally, a, a fun article from, from Brian Krebs, thinking of a cybersecurity career, question mark, read this. Basically, what actually matters for getting an actual job in actual cybersecurity? Hint, hint, it's not about qualifications. It's about your actual skills. So hmm. learning to program is more important than having a piece of paper that says you're a security guy. Or gal. Or gal. <laughs> I, so to me, guy is gender neutral. Yeah, but... it turns out it isn't. <laughs> yeah. um, we've got to got to get that one out. I still say it too, by the way. I catch myself a lot. Um, I really like that because there's so many things where people think the wrong thing is important. What is actually, I, I, I think that's what job board should be about. Here's what yeah. you actually need. Like you need to yeah. have critical thinking skills. You need to have a logical uh, ability to follow a logical path in testing what you do. Uh, you know, those are always more important that I can teach you to code, but I can't think you teach you to be a critical thinker. Can't do it. Yeah. Those are two different yeah. things. I know our physics department was always very big on stressing the fact that you may never actually use physics in your career. But we are going to teach you to think scientifically, and that is going to stand to you whether, no matter what you end up doing as a career. And if only everybody in the world much. hadn't taken that class, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, very high on the list of the stuff that uh, the security companies were interested in was an understanding of networking. Hmm. Because cybersecurity these days is all about our connected world. So understanding the TCP IP stuff Basically, we did the whole section on this in Taming the Terminal of all places. Yeah, all of that did. stuff in Taming the Terminal is exactly the kind of stuff. And then the other thing that's exactly the kind of stuff is the stuff we're doing in programming by stealth. And you could argue that none of that has anything to do with security, but they're exactly the skills that companies are actually looking for in the real world. Interesting. Cool. Yeah, We just so. need Brian Krebs to point to those two podcasts and we'll be golden. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. That would be quite the coup. Uh, anyway. So a good, good read and, you know, nice and reality based. And that's all I got in terms of news. So I have a palate cleanser from you and a palate cleanser from me. So do you want to go first? Sure. Um, this is called, uh, this is from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and it's called the Atlas of Surveillance. 
So the problem they were trying to solve was people often ask them, um, okay, so what kind of security things are, you know, what kind of surveillance is going on in my city? And mm-hmm. that, that takes an enormous amount of effort. So what they did was they were, they've been working with the University of Nevada, allowing uh, research interns to go out and research articles that explain anything about one of these surveillance methods that is going on in some city. And they've created this really cool map. There's better ways to access to actually get the data you need, but the map's really nifty. Um, You can look at a map of this all U.S. centric. Uh, You can look at a map of the United States and see by city where there's like body worn cameras. Are there drones? Are there automated license plate readers, ring neighbor uh, partnerships, camera registry, face recognition? So you can and you can zoom in on cities and you can click on each of these little buttons and um, and you get a little article, just a short pop up that says the agency that's doing it, the technology they're using and a one sentence uh, a summary of what's going of what's going on there. And it's it's really cool. You can also go to search the data, and then you can download it as a CSV and all this kind of thing to to sort it and and draw little little conclusions from it. It's pretty nifty. That is pretty cool, and it's a great tool if you'd like to start applying pressure to your particular authorities because you'll be armed with the facts and you'll be able to go. Actually, I don't think, Mister Local Mayor, that this should be happening in my city. And, you know, you right, have tools right. to, to find out what's going on. And, so and, and Ms. Local Mayor, you should stop using face recognition because it's been proven to be uh, bigoted in its uh, in its own right because of the data sets it's straight on. Yes, as we learned from No Little More Now. Right, right. Uh, yeah, no, it's a great pick. Uh, data is a wonderful disinfectant for these kind of things. It makes it much easier to stand up for what's right. So love that. Again, it's at atlasofsurveillance.org and there's a link in the show notes. And I also love the EFF so much so that even though I can't claim it against tax, I am a donor to the EFF. As am I. They make lovely stickers, actually. My laptop has a sticker. Um, what is it? I think it's the one about I know your password or something like that. It's, <laughs> or Yeah, it's, I, they, I love their stickers. Every year I get a, a pack of stickers when I send my donation and I love them. Um, so my pick is a pick we've picked before, uh, or my palate cleanser. Uh, the Red Hat have a wonderful podcast series uh, called Command Line Heroes. And there is a mini series they're airing at the moment. It's a three-parter. Part one is out. Part two is coming this week. And it is dedicated to becoming a coder. Yay! That's fun. So that is, yeah, so as Programming by Celt is on hiatus, this will tide you over. Just give you three doses of programming fun from is, the is wonderful Saran, people that I can't pronounce her last name. Is she the uh, the interviewer again? She is, and she's, she's wonderful. Yeah, she's fabulous, fabulous. Um, speaking of, you know, good female role models in coding, I don't think you can do any better than her. No, she's fantastic. Akbari, or uh, no, yeah, I'm going to butcher it, it so that's fast. not... Yeah, when she says it, it sounds fine and easy to say. And then when I try to say it, it's like, oh, nope, <laughs> my mouth can't get around that. But that whole series is extremely, she's she's focused on a lot of really cool female characters through the history of computer science. And she, she's an absolute treasure. And that whole podcast series, all of it is great. But this little mini series is particularly for our people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's really, really good. Well, this is great. We got a lot in under our belts here. It was I, I like these meaty ones. I like them better than a list of horror, you know, 
the, the yeah, unfortunately, important. it's up to the news gods to decide whether lots of terrible things have happened or whether it's one of these weeks. I guess summertime, we tend to have more of these, which is nice. A little bit of a break. Anyway, the important thing, of course, as always, is that until next time, people should remember to stay patched so they stay secure. Well, that is going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. You can email me at allison at podfeet.com and follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. If you want to check out that high fidelity thing I was talking about, I just set up something called podfeet.com slash lounge. If you go in there and you get, you got, kind of got to get somebody else to go in there with you or you won't understand it at all. But anyway, if you check out podfeet.com slash lounge, you can go hear it and talk to people. If you want to uh, obey Frank, you can go to podfeet.com slash Patreon or podfeet.com slash PayPal to make a donation to keep the show running. And if you want to join in our community like Bart suggested, go to podfeet.com slash Slack, or you can join our Facebook community at podfeet.com slash Facebook. See, whatever you're thinking of, podfeet.com slash that thing. And if you want to join in the, f- the fun of the live show like Brian did the first time after meeting me and Steve in the High Fidelity Lounge at MaxDoc, Head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.